I'm your host, Nina Serrano. This is Nina Serrano for Poet to Poet. My guest today is Jennifer Lisa Vest, a very exciting poet that I'm so thrilled to have come across. And she's in our studio today and ready to read some of her latest poems. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've been excited about your poems since I accidentally came in on one of your recording sessions and got to hear them. So what have you brought to share with us? Well, I brought my uh, newest manuscript. It's called She Said Tell Stories. I'm currently sending it out for looking for a publisher. And it's called Chicago. We weren't poor, no, just hungry and proud. Malden Street in Old Town before it was hip. No, it was always hip, says my mother. There were white people and brown people there, immigrants and jazz. We were foreigners by default. Hull House, our haven. We knew Spanish by accident. We felt distinguished by our lack of roaches. Sure, we had lice, but everybody did. Free breakfast, free lunch, free after-school program. A bus and two L's each morning. Sometimes we just swung on the swings before school, waiting. They called our mother once, told her she couldn't do that. But she worked so hard, so far away, two trains and all day. Leave us there like that playground at dawn one morning we found out why boys chased us into alleys we threw up our carnation instant breakfast mommy always dressed us up real nice taught us to be polite kissed and hugged us tight we never wore store-bought clothes they were all from scratch everything matched if we were poor nobody told us we were loved Wonderful poem. Thank, Thank you. you. What other poems do you have for us? Well, I have a, another piece on poverty that I actually wrote for a friend of mine. But I really wrote it for a lot of people. You know, ever since we've had this economic downturn, a lot of people have really been struggling. And so I wrote this from an, you know, an artist's perspective, what poverty is like for an artist. And it's called Poverty Is. Poverty is not having enough money to buy books, reams of white paper, printer cartridges, and being too tired from working to write. Poverty is about not having choices. Poverty is the dollar menu, potatoes and rice, the cheap vegetables with the pesticides, assumptions, innuendos, casual slights. Poverty is about not traveling, never leaving home where you grew up, never meeting anyone new, never being anyone new, being stuck. Riding the bus when you are cranky and tired, fending off random stranger aggression for daily survival. Bearing witness to street corner explosions of hope, poverty is being forgotten. Poverty is living in a cramped, dirty apartment where things break and never get fixed, next to loud, violent people who nobody will ever evict. It's living with people you don't like, who don't like you, for reasons you can't change and didn't choose. Poverty is a boss who disrespects you at a job you can't afford to quit. Poverty is about saying yes when you want to say no, suffering instead of a checkup, pain when painlessness was possible, dying when you didn't have to. Poverty is always thinking what you would say if you could say, what you would do if you could. 
Poverty is paying more for less, having no recourse, no redress. Poverty is standing in line for the 17th time to talk to a rude-ass guy who just doesn't give a damn. Poverty is dignity denied. Genius stifled art inside of you without the paint, words inside of you without a stage. Poverty is completely unnecessary. Poverty is no money for books, reams of white paper, printer cartridges, canvases to paint, and being too tired from working to write, too hungry to paint, too angry to create. Besides, poverty can't afford beauty. It has much more important things to do. Laughs at poetry, calls it foolish, defines life narrowly, tells you what you can and cannot do. Poverty is about not having choices. What I like so much about that poem is that line, poverty is unnecessary. <laughs> Completely unnecessary. <laughs> I think it opens up hope inside the poem as you're winding down to the end is that concept well, and all the thoughts that go behind that, that poverty is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the earlier poem about your mom and Chicago, you mentioned Hull House. Yes. Well, in Hull House was a beacon of culture nationally, a place where so many young people got fabulous opportunities to participate in the arts. Were you one of them? I was. Hull House was this wonderful place when I was a child. It was right in our neighborhood. We went there every day after school, and there were all kinds of programs. Yeah, lots of arts programs. Jane Addams was the founder, wasn't right. she? And as a child, we had no idea that it was a place for poor kids or, you know, working class kids or whatever. We didn't have, there was no stigma associated with it. It was very diverse, as was our neighborhood. And so the kids were from a lot of different cultures. And they had mentors, kind of teen mentors who would come. And they were also uh, from a lot of different cultures. And there were a lot of different languages spoken. And it was just a very loving place. Yes, the concept, Hull House, when it first opened, I don't know how early in the 20th century that it opened, or was it the 19th even? I think it was, yeah, like maybe the... Way I, back. No, I think it was, yeah, like 1890s or something. Yeah, way back. Because Part it, of a social reform Yes, and philosophy. the whole concept of having uh, after-school enrichment programs like they had at Hull House or in the places I went in New York, like Greenwich House and Hudson Guild that were similar based on that concept. They were marvelous places, and I guess they marked us both as... Uh, people following the arts because they were so dedicated to the arts mm -hmm. and arts for people. Right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that as contributing to my artistic development, but that makes sense. My my grandmother was a storyteller and she used to recite poems to us at a very young age. And so I grew up hearing a lot of poetry and a lot of stories and she had her own storytelling program on the radio. And so I often think that she's a big part of my becoming a poet because I had that early influence. So let's hear more about your ancestors. Okay, let's see. It's called You Look Like My People. You look like my people, I tell her, tracing the lines of my grandmother's in the wrinkles around her eyes, the shape of her cheeks escaping from the center of her face like large brown mesas enchant me with memories. 
I try to explain simply, say, maybe we are distant kin. Where do you come from? You look like my people. She laughs, doesn't answer, asks, who are your people? That's a long and confusing story, I say, and continue with my questions about this link. Until she, too, becomes mesmerized by my conviction that there's a connection. We begin the investigation like a dance with gentle probes and speculations about love, geography, language, tradition. We take out paper, pens, maps, and photographs, frantic for explanation, search the shelves for snapshots for the cousin, auntie, ancestor who proves it. We sit close to touching. I trace my finger across her jaw, try to grasp this resemblance, so familiar, so elusive, so real. But all these images and even imagination fails us. In our frustration, we resort to words, write poetry, remember weddings, recite genealogies, retell family stories. We even make lists of clans, race, tribes of people's names of place. In the end, nothing exactly connects. We have, it seems, few traditions in common, no kin to call cousins. But I don't believe, I refuse to accept these unwelcome answers, these concrete but false conclusions. I claim her anyway. So this poem is called Somebody Forgot to Tell Somebody Something, and I wrote it in response to a referendum that was passed in 2000 by the Oklahoma Seminole in which they disenfranchised all the members of the tribe who had African heritage. Something happened at Seminole, something stunning, something sad. Somebody forgot in the seventh month of the 16th decade after their unwilling surrender. Somebody among the survivors of three wars. Somebody after encountering three types of treacherous whites. Somebody after three forms of federal foul play after being allotted, terminated, and reorganized. Somebody forgot. Somebody forgot. And these striking, stricken people started to divide themselves up. How is it? How is it? How could it? Who would have? Somebody forgot to tell somebody something. How else to explain a people dividing itself up after the conquest? How else to explain a people saying ancestors don't, history don't, kinship don't matter, only race? Somebody, maybe somebody's mother, somebody, maybe somebody's son, somebody forgot to sing the songs, somebody forgot to tell the stories, no honor stories, no honor stories for the dead. How else to explain 300 years of struggle evaporated in a single election? How else to explain people claiming Seminole and full blood in the same breath? How else to explain disowning relatives for the white man's money, guns, and high-stakes bingo games? How else to explain... Somebody forgot to tell somebody. Somebody forgot to remember who we are, who we were, who we have been, and how we got here. Somebody forgot to remember the Yamasee Seminole slaves married in. Somebody forgot to remember the numerous and fumbling fragments and bands finding each other in Florida, escaping, cascading into new places, new races, calling each other kin. 
Somebody forgot to remember we weren't always the Seminole tribe, just one more band of ragged survivors escaping the spreading plague of Europeans marching across the land. Somebody forgot what the word Seminole stands for, what it means. Somehow, with all the stories our grandmothers told us, somehow, with all the pride we carry about puffed up in our patchwork shirts, somehow, after five reservations, two languages, and three countries, somebody forgot to tell somebody something, and we have forgotten who we are. How else to explain the separation General Jessup set in motion being finished up by modern so-called Oklahoma Seminole? How else to explain reviving the legacy of Indian Commissioner Harris, skilled separator of Indians by color, renowned returner of suspiciously dark-skinned Cherokees, Seminole, and Creek, to the white planters who claim them as slaves? Somebody forgot to tell somebody something. Somebody forgot the ancestors, too. Somebody forgot the hundreds of black Indians who died at the fort, the Negro Fort in Apalachicola, so that the Red Indians might live. And somebody forgot all the red-skinned men and women who died in the first Seminole War, rather than separate out the so-called blacks from within. Somebody forgot to remember the demands of Chief Alligator and McCanopy, who said they wouldn't move west without the guarantee that the dark-skinned black and half-breeds among them would be allowed to come with. And somebody forgot the ancestors who died at Mulatto Girls Town, who died at Payne's Town, at King Hazia's Town, at Bucker Woman's Town, all so-called Seminole Negro towns. Somebody forgot Mulatto King of Choconicla Town too. Nobody did, but somebody should have told those Indians holed up in Vawoka in Oklahoma about the half-breed Seminole John Horse who founded that town, who fought with Osceola and Wildcat, who traveled to Washington, who, for being black, was forced to flee to Mexico in search of an elusive justice he never received. But somebody forgot to tell somebody something. It seems so many stories have been forgot. The ashes of our ancestors blow about unrecognized, and we have forgotten where we came from, who we once were, and how we have come to exist. How else to explain a people dividing itself up after the conquest? That's a phenomenal poem. Thank you. Yeah, phenomenal. Did this come from your family history, from this grandmother full of stories, or does this also reflect your academic studies? Yeah, it's a combination. So um, I grew up with my Seminole grandmother who helped raise me, and I only learned a little bit from her. Uh, just kind of the really important things like, you know, we were never defeated and we never signed a treaty and she was never on a reservation because we didn't believe in reservations. Seminole didn't believe in reservations. And so then I was surprised when I grew up and found out that there was a Seminole reservation. And so I actually went to the reservation in Florida and talked to a lot of the old people. And I also began as a student, you know, reading everything I could about the Seminole and trying to figure out the history of the tribe. And a lot of what was written in the books by historians was just ridiculous. It was erroneous. And it was all written by white anthropologists and historians. The Seminole are kind of, you know, known for not really having a great deal of desire to be a part of white culture. And they were one of the last groups to, um, you know, learn English. 
and, you know, allow their children to even go to uh, non-Indigenous schools. And so there's a lot of misinformation. And so I had to actually go and talk to the elders and kind of get a better sense. And so I actually wrote a piece similar to this called Names, where I, I tell the history of the Seminole tribe based on what I was told. And then when this referendum came out, I felt that I had to speak out because I'm black and Seminole. And um, although I'm not Oklahoma Seminole, my people are Florida Seminole, I still felt that I needed to speak out because it's obvious that the Oklahoma Seminole have forgotten the history of the tribe in Florida. But if you look at the history of the tribe in Florida, which is where the Oklahoma Seminole come from, they were forced on the Trail of Tears to go to Oklahoma. Historically, the Florida tribe mixed heavily with African and other native groups. So there was there was no such thing as, you know, blacks being a separate group and then Seminole. And so I try to give that history in the poem of all of these important people in the history of the Seminole tribe who were you know, either part black or who were um, married to blacks or who had black children, because I want that history to be known. I presented this poem at a university and I was on a panel with another academic who was an Oklahoma Seminole and after I read my poem she said you know that her parents told her that when the ancestors got to Oklahoma they just decided to start the history over because the trail of tears was so painful that nobody wanted to remember that and so that was just, you know, taken out. And that was the survival strategy that we're going to start our history here. And so when I said to her, so many stories have been forgot, she said, it's true, you know, but it was a strategy for survival. So this poem is critical. You know, it's me as a black mixed blood Seminole being critical of other Seminole who are maybe not being inclusive enough about mixed blood Seminoles. But it's really not just about that. It's it's really about the conquest. It's really about the history of the conquest of the Americas and, and how this has happened to all the tribes, you know, getting conquered, getting divided up, getting re redefined and having your tribe split up and, and, and joined with other tribes and forced to live alongside people that were your historic enemies and, you know, all these all these things that have happened to so many tribes in the U.S. And so the, the poem is really about that whole history of well, conquest. You, you dealt with it very, very well. Thank you. Very well. So this poem is called Some Wounds. There are some wounds that never heal. No amount of tending, pretending, careful, concentrated concern, nor positive neglect, release of regret. Some sores, nothing erases, nothing cures. Bandages don't hide, scars refuse to fade. Some wounds are for life, testimony to strife. Tell on us, broadcast to the world, accusations in the flesh. Let everybody know what got left, what was undone, what morning song was sung, what can't be forgot, what and who, after all, we have become. There are some wounds, red gashes of pain, raised black and brown welts remain, some scars that grow larger, not smaller, with time. Some wounds that mark us, stain the soul, set us forever apart, cause cause people to stare and start. Some wounds that can't be glanced at, never become commonplace, happenstance, never get replaced by glory, funny stories, the champions parade, never become red badges of courage. 
And these are the wounds nobody talks about, everybody sees. These are the wounds nobody wants, everybody runs from, nobody seeks. Which is why these are the wounds that never heal. We refuse to believe they're even real. It seems easier somehow. Never mind the screaming, bleeding tirades. In the end, we just refuse to be marked by something we can't change, rearrange, overcome, unravel, or defeat. Still, there are some wounds that never heal, wounds that are for life, testimony to strife, evidence in the flesh. Let everybody know what succumbed, what died, what did and didn't survive, what and who, after all, we have become. You know, I find in the schools, I do storytelling in the schools with young children, and when we are looking for a common theme that every child will be able to talk about. We talk about scary stories. We say, who has any scars? And everybody raises their hand, and one by one, they're ready to tell the story of their scars. <laughs> and your poem is the adult version. Right, right. <laughs> that we carry them, and they go on for decades and decades, mm -hmm. changing yeah, I wanted to write about the scarring, and I wanted to do it in a way that, um, you know, had a positive side to it. I want it to sound not just like a very depressing, woeful account of, you know, wounding, but rather to talk about wounding in such a way that we accept wounds as, you know. Well, in the poem, you talk about wounding as part of healing. The ones yes. that don't get exposed or discussed, those are the ones that don't get healed. Right. Well, so, of course, by implication, you're saying, well, if we bring these wounds into the open, they can heal. Yeah. And I think I also want people to recognize that it's not necessarily bad to have wounds. You know, it's what defines us in certain ways. And if we can accept that about ourselves, then, you know, we can live with them. And maybe we can accept other people because they too exactly. are wounded. Exactly. We're all wounded in some way. I found it a lovely poem. Thank you. So this poem is called Wonder Woman, and I wrote it for my Aunt Sandra, Sandra Halvest. I've spent my life pretending I was invincible, unbeatable, the rock of Gibraltar in the island of everybody's life but my own. I've survived so many sad occasions, disappointments and betrayals. I've learned how to weep without crying, how to endure death without dying, how to keep my face placid in the face of countless crises. I've been a flag in the wind, never torn down, despite the downpour. I've marched along stoically, singing loudly, ain't nobody gonna turn me, ain't nobody gonna turn me, ain't nobody gonna turn me around. Because underneath my just-pressed, color-coordinated, hard-working clothes, I always wore a cape. I've spent my life pretending nobody could hurt me, nothing knocked me down, nobody's stones or wicked words ever wound me. When necessary, I've grown calluses on bruises. When necessary, I've embroidered flowers onto helmets and called them hats. When necessary, I've painted casts and bandages and called them fashion. I have been beautiful in my denial. I've spent my life promoting others, morale boosting, initiating every cheering session, organizing every gathering of compassion. I've made the phone calls, led the marches, cooked the dishes, sat by the bedsides, and never looked for gratitude, for thanksgiving, or recompense from anyone. 
I've spent my life pretending I didn't need anyone to save me. I did the saving. I was everybody's Wonder Woman. I saved women from their husbands. I saved workers from their bosses. I saved children from their parents. I broke up fights in bars. I called my mother to get my sister to call my other sister to make up. I had a broad shoulder, a warm breast, a wet shirt, and a solution for everybody's problems but my own. I've spent my life pretending I didn't have problems, just setbacks and solutions. When I needed help, I helped myself. When I was in trouble, I rounded up my own resolution. Because Batman had a sidekick and a butler, but Wonder Woman worked alone. I spent my life pretending I never got angry, so in control, so peaceful. I never raised my voice so Christ-like. I always forgave every insult, every assault. Gandhi had nothing on me. I turned the tragedy of my childhood into a series of funny stories, as if to say that even as a five-year-old, I was already invincible. Wonder baby. I turned the trials of my adulthood into funny fables to tell the children, as if Mama never faltered, never failed, never cried out to an indifferent God, as if I never doubted I would survive. I live my life spouting out a series of survivor sayings: "What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Don't let the turkeys get you down. Only the strong survive. This too will pass." As if the right words would make the pain go away, as if my laughter could keep the heartbreak at bay. I've spent my life forgetting every injustice done to me, as if I was bigger than the crimes committed against me, as if I was Teflon coated and lion-hearted, as if I was the only flower in the garden who never wilted, who never needed water or sunshine or a loving green thumb to thrive. Anyway, how could I thrive when others weren't thriving? Wouldn't that be asking too much? And I never knew. Maybe nobody ever sat Wonder Woman down and told her. It never occurred to me that strength was no guarantee of survival. I've spent my life pretending I was invincible, unbeatable, the rock of Gibraltar and the island of everybody's life, oblivious to the waves crashing down around me, and nobody ever told me it's not just the strong that survive. Nobody ever told me, and why would I listen anyway? Wasn't it my strength that saved me? Wasn't it my strength everyone counted on? If I wasn't strong, what was I? I spent my life pretending I was invincible, unbeatable, and I never knew in all my life-saving heroics. I never figured out. No one even hinted at the possibility that sometimes it's those who learn how to surrender, who say I can't, to admit weakness, to ask for help, who are the strongest, and survival is irrelevant. You've been listening to Jennifer Lisa Vest reading her own poetry. Before you go, Jennifer, please give us your contact information so that people can find your work. It's so wonderful. I have my own website, which is just my name, JenniferLisaVest.com, and that connects to a lot of other places where you can find my work. I'm on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. 
and I have you can actually listen to my work on SoundCloud, Reverb Nation, and Songstall, and I have um, MP3s of my poetry for sale that you can buy as downloads on Reverb Nation. And if we go to your website, we'd be able to find roads to all yes, paths. Yes, everything all everything this. connects to the website. So give us the website again. Okay, it's JenniferLisaVest.com. JenniferLisaVest.com, and thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. This has been Nina Sverno with Jill Montgomery for the Poet to Poet series. Please check out my website, ninaserrano.com, to hear other programs, poems, and a listing of my upcoming events. Thanks for listening. to join the KPFA team for our first annual Summer Arts Fair. We are seeking friendly and reliable volunteers to help at the doors and assist exhibitors and visitors at the fair. On Friday, June 19th, we need help setting up from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. On Saturday, June 20th, we need help from 7 a.m. to 6.45 p.m. And on Sunday, June 21st, from 9.45 a.m. to 9 p.m. This event takes place at the Craneway Pavilion at 1414 Harbor Way in Richmond. And it's an opportunity for you to attend as KPFA's guest. And thanks for working a three-hour shift at the fair. If you'd like to sign up for a shift, call Felix at 510-848-6767, extension 629, or email volunteer at kpfa.org. We appreciate your help and hope to see you there. KPFA has launched an Indiegogo campaign to raise $100,000 for improvements to our building. Over the last 24 years, there's been a lot of wear and tear to our radio stations, and we haven't always had the money to fix or even mend a lot of our problems. Over those years, we've told the truth about historical moments of political impasse, racial tensions, and economic inequality. To continue the fight, we have to update our studio equipment, repair our tattered offices, and last but not least, repair or replace our elevator. Please join KPFA's Community Building Campaign.